Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. We've got a big guest just in a moment, Dan Pfeiffer of Pod Save America, of course, former senior advisor to Barack Obama. We want to talk midterms with him, and we also want to talk to him about what it's like to deal with Bob Woodward. What's it like when you get that <laughs> call that Woodward wants to talk to you? I haven't He's gotten had it. He's, it's I happened to him. I haven't gotten the call, John. I, I have, though, worked on ABC News interviews with Bob Woodward, and yes. I've gotten a chance to see at close hand his meticulous process and the, the reams of research that he does and the interviews and the transcriptions that exist. And this book that is, uh, that is blanketed Washington this week of the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, this week right after Labor Day, the traditional start to the fall campaigning, you have this book landing with it's so, not even out yet. It's not even way. out. It's not out till next week. <laughs> we still we still have a while. This is going to be a long storm that is uh, that is uh, engineered once again by Bob Woodward, the, one of the preeminent journalists of this or any generation, the chronicler of some eight presidents, uh, now including President Trump. Uh, there there are so many things to unpack in in this uh, in this book, John. A lot of them are things that you've been witnessing for the last couple of years, uh, aides that are on on edge and worried about the president's mental ability and mental state at times. Uh, he even calls it an administrative coup d'etat. Yes. And that, I think, is more than any of the anecdotes that we've seen come out that he writes about. That phrase, administrative coup d'etat, is, is perfect. I mean, <laughs> how many times, Rick, I know it's happened to you, it's happened to me a lot. Have you seen... Senior administration officials, former officials, and current officials, including some that are still over there right now, who will say privately... Oh, I know what you're going to say. You're not going to believe the stuff we stop. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you think it's crazy. You should see the stuff we stop from happening. Um, that is that is a recurring theme. Now, I didn't know that Gary Cohn was actually grabbing something off the president's desk and pocketing it, but I <laughs> fully believe that the president didn't notice it was gone. I mean, that's... Uh, it's it's It's... It's fascinating. Yeah, and, and, and up to and including John Kelly, who talks about this as, as crazy town, and, and uh, General Mattis. who I had a senior official at the White House tell me, you should wake up every morning and be thankful that Jim Mattis is in his job. Well, and why, why are they saying that? Because Jim Mattis, uh, according to this book, gets off the phone with the president. The president um, orders the obliteration of Syria. And Mattis gets off the phone and says, we're not going to do or any of that. at least Assad. At least Assad, Assad. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just destroy the place, flat the place. Uh, and it is interesting because I've heard of this justification for a lot of people that I've talked to and that you've talked to that, that haven't aligned ideologically with President Trump or made uncomfortable with a lot of things that President Trump does in the White House. They use it as a way to say, look, if I didn't do it, it'd be worse. Bad things would happen. Someone else would have to do the job. But the fact that it's coming out now, you know, only 18 months or so into this presidency, right in advance of the midterms, that there were this many loose lips and this many uh, verifiable details, um, hours and hours of tapes, we believe, that Bob Woodward would have at his disposal of, of White House aides, current and former, who cooperated with this book, is, is stunning. And One thing is I would be driven, if I were Donald Trump, and I am not, <laughs> um, it would just drive me crazy, the amount of leaks that have come out of this White House from his first week in office. It is astounding. Uh, the, the, the amount of internal deliberations, phone calls, obviously early on, the, the transcripts of conversations with right. world leaders that have that have leaked out of this White House are phenomenal. But, Rick, this is all against the background of the midterm elections, which we want to talk to Dan Pfeiffer about with Barack Obama about to hit the campaign trail uh, next week. Uh, big speech, uh, we're told, on Friday. And 
our poll, which uh, which is which is just out this week, showing that Democrats now have a 14 point advantage in the generic ballot. 14 points. I've had top Republicans tell me that they can keep the House if they could keep it to seven. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's not seven. It's not. I think it's a little more than that. Uh, and look, is it at this moment uh, a 14 point? Landslide, maybe, maybe we'll see. It is, I think, in our polling, it is at this moment. But does that mean it's going to happen? It's in just November? one poll. <laughs> it's a poll. It's a very, it's a very important, influential ABC News Washington Post poll, yes. of course. I think, though, uh, if you if you fast forward over these next two months, uh, I've talked to a number of Republicans who've made a similar point. They can game plan um, in their mind because they've lived it uh, lots of ways that things spiral and get a lot worse. What they have a hard time figuring out is how do things get better because it's not as if they haven't been out there making the case about a strong economy, about relative peace and prosperity, about a president's leadership, about trying to trying to joust against Nancy Pelosi and what the Democrats would do. They've already been doing that. They've been spending money on that. They're going to spend more money on that. They're going to say it more. But what is it about that message that's going to start to penetrate and get through the, the cloud of mistrust and suspicion around this president, around this presidency? That's what sets the stage for this midterm election. So, yes, Obama will be out there. Trump will be out there. Lots of individual candidates will be dumping money on each other to try to make the case. But the, nat- the nationalized forces are beginning to mass. All right. Joining us now here on Power House Politics is Dan Pfeiffer, of course, one of President Obama's top advisors, also the author of Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump, and the co-host of of, of the political podcast, Pod Save America. They Dan, thank you for joining too. us. I'm not sure. They seem like they've done okay. <laughs> yeah, no, these guys, yeah, yeah. they've caught hey guys, on. How are you doing? Doing great, doing great. So, uh, my, my God, so much to talk to you about. Um, I, I, I'm going to get to Bob Woodward momentarily, of course, um, a lot else. But I see that Barack Obama is going to be out on the campaign trail. We, we, we hear he's going to have a significant speech at the University of Illinois on Friday, and then he's going to be out campaigning next week in Ohio and in California. So who better to tell us what to expect from Obama on the campaign trail than Dan Pfeiffer? What, what are we going to hear from the president? I think you will hear the president lay out the stakes for the election and continue what he said to Americans in his final speech right, right as he left the office in January of 2017 about the role and responsibility that citizens have to take, take the fate of the country in their own hands. And, look, he's one of the all-time great campaigners, Midterm elections are about turnout and firing up, firing up the base. And I think who's better to do that than Barack Obama? But is he going to be directly taking on Donald Trump? Because it seems like he's been reluctant to do so so far. Is think, he going to be think, out uh, there taking this right to the president? I, I would encourage everyone, including my fellow uh, podcasters here today, to check out to, to fellow podcasters. <laughs> people at ABC News to check out his speech and see exactly what he says. But I think you will hear, uh, hear him lay out the stakes of the election in a, in a, in a pretty forthright way. Okay, so, so let's uh, – we, we got a lot to talk to in terms of the midterms, but, but I, I just need to get your take on Bob Woodward, who I know is somebody you had to deal with. You, uh, there were you know, Woodward, Woodward books on, on the mm-hmm. Obama White House, of course. But – but before we get to specifics about Woodward is reporting, I want to get to the mm. kind of method here, um, yeah. because Woodward has released a an eleven minute, which I know you've listened to, uh, phone conversation that he had with the president. The president called him uh, uh, last month, 
a little concerned that he had not been interviewed by Bob Woodward. <laughs> and it's a very interesting. I know you've been on the receiving end, and 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 you know you, you've had some conversations with uh, with with the likes of Bob Woodward. But this seemed a rather yeah. extraordinary conversation. I want to just play a couple of short clips and then get your take. First of all, here is the president wanting to know why in the world why in the world Woodward didn't talk to him. Oh, I never got a call. I never got a message. Who did you Who did you ask about speaking to me? Well, about six people. Uh, you know, well, they uh, don't tell me. Senator, uh, uh, I talked to Kellyanne about it two and a half Mr. months Kelly. ago. It's really too bad because nobody told me about it, and I would have loved to have spoken to you. You know, I'm very open to you. I think you've always been fair. And then, um, amazingly, while this conversation is going on, Kellyanne walks in the room. I, I assume it's the Oval Office. Uh, listen. I'm talking to Bob Woodward. He said that he told you about speaking to me, but you never told me. Why didn't you tell me? I would have been very happy to speak to him. And then the president puts Kellyanne on the phone. Well, let me ask her. Why don't you speak to Kellyanne? Ask her. She never told me about it. Hey Bob, how are you? Hi. Hi. Uh, remember two and a half months ago you came over and I laid out, I wanted to talk to the president, and you said you would uh, get back to me? I do, and I put in the request, but, you know, they, it, it was rejected. I can only take it so far. I guess I can bring it right to the president next time. <laughs> so, next time. <laughs> so, so, Dan, um, I, mean, I mean, first of all, did you ever, like, walk in on the president while he was on the phone with somebody like that? Um what I mean, just the, the process <laughs> Never, here. The process here. We, yeah, we ha- we actually had a process, and <laughs> Barack Obama, being perhaps a uh, more process oriented guy, would usually tell me or Josh Ernest or Jay Carney or Jen Saki or Jen Palmieri before he got on the phone with a reporter, and we talk about it as part of a I don't know a plan or something like that. I mean, the whole like every part of that conversation makes my stomach hurt. I mean, hearing Bob Woodward's voice as someone who was responsible for helping shepherd Woodward's second book and Obama through the process. That makes my stomach hurt. Watching Kelly and Conway be caught in a lie and then called out by the boss uh, also makes my stomach hurt. The whole thing is uh, basically this, what the transcripts ends up doing is proving Woodward's larger point about how the Trump, how Trump operates and how the Trump White House operates. Kelly and Conway did the equivalent of if she had this request and didn't tell Trump, which it seems like, she would be equivalent of the Gary Cohn move of stealing the executive order off his desk. <laughs> Dan, when when you had books that came out, or the, either either an author that you knew would be critical or something that, that came out that was critical, how did you process that? I, I do remember you guys were pretty aggressive at times if there was reporting out there that you felt was inaccurate. Nothing on the likes of what this White House does, but um, you didn't just take shots that you you perceived uh sitting down what was the process like and how would you respond to something that that came out that was critical of uh, of the obama administration yeah so we had no, a number of books written during contemporaneous histories of the obama administration written by uh sort of neutral authors famous authors people who we knew would be critical and woodward himself wrote two books on obama one about afghanistan the sort of afghanistan policy did, Afghanistan policy decision-making process in the first term, and then the a very like sort of a TikTok of the 2011 budget battles, and in both of those, what, ha- what generally happens is reporters and Wilbert is unique in the in how he approaches it, but we'll, the authors will come to you and say, "We're I'm, I'm planning on writing a book, and I would like to interview the president, have all the access in the world." 
And we would make a decision if we thought it was a book, whether it was going to be critical or not critical, that, quote unquote, Washington would take seriously, right? You guys would take seriously would be a thing that would um, dominate the press secretary's briefing or whatever else. We would decide to engage. We wouldn't promise the president on the front end, uh, but we would try to have a process to facilitate cooperation with the book. And so, for example, with Woodward, in both of his books, in Woodward's second book, which I can speak to because that was one I helped uh, Shepard, he, like, he would come to my office and he would give a list of people he wanted to talk to, and we would try to arrange those interviews on his behalf in, for two reasons. One, it just makes our lives easier if he's just not randomly calling people in the building and those people are calling in panic, being like, oh, my God, Bob Wilbur left me a message. What do I do? You know, and just, so there's like a process to it. And we also then would sort of know what everyone was telling each other. Now, obviously, hmm. Bob Wilbur has ability to operate outside of my system, and he did many times. But cooperation is general. Trying to shape it is better than just sort of turning a blind eye if it is going to become a dominant story, as Wilbur's books always do. We saw this in the Clinton presidency, the Bush presidency, Obama presidency, and now the Trump presidency. Now, when you're faced with a book, there are two types of books that you can fight back on. There are uh, books like Woodward's, which, look, I think Woodward is obviously one of our most famous journalists. I'm not the, the biggest fan of necessarily a sort of omniscient narrator, uh, anonymous reporting style, but it's sort of unassailable, right? It's just you're going to lose that battle. Like, you can pick nits here or there, but the ability to discredit the book in a way that would cause the press and the larger political world to dismiss it is basically an impossibility, when you have books where there are, uh, there are sloppy, where there are obvious flaws, we, you know, we would do it in a different tone and hopefully a better, more respectful way than the Trump administration handled the Michael Wolff book. But when there's obvious, outright falsehood, provably false things in the book, it's, your, it's really your job to point that out because it, will, it raises questions about some of the larger uh, conclusions of the book. And so we saw that with a book from Ron Suskind that had a number of problematic, uh, improvably false uh, the sort of conversations or anecdotes that happened in there, and we went about uh, doing that. But it, there's, a way, there's a way to do it, and it's usually, a scalpel is usually better than a sledgehammer. So obviously there's a sledgehammer uh, that, that lives at, uh, in the White House these days, and he has, uh, he has suggested that this book is pure fiction and that there maybe even need to change the libel laws as a result. But the, the question that I've been asked a lot, Dan, in, in the last 24 hours, it is a question that you've know, been asked a lot over the last 18 months, actually. Does it matter? What's your sense? Does, does, this make, does this make more of a dent on Trump? Does it make any political difference, anything more than the other rafts of revelations about uh, the behind-the-scenes um, maneuverings and machinations and worrying and, and dissing and, and insulting that goes on in the White House all the time? No, I don't. Well, I think like what is notable about this is it simply just proves the reporting that you guys have done, Maggie Haberman, New York Times have done, active, everyone, everyone has written. These may be slightly different anecdotes, but it's the exact same picture we've, we've seen for two years because the White House leaks like I said, we're living in it. We've been living it for 18 months in a 24-7 Woodwardian uh, discussion of the presidency, right? It used to be you only found out these things when Woodward's book comes out, and now you've, you, we just know about them all the time. They're in, they're, it's 24-7. What I, where these things, Matt, like the wrong way to look at this politically, in my view, is will this knock Trump down from 39 to 36%? Will his base finally leave him? And that's, that's sort of a, um, it's not going to happen. It's a moot point. It's not actually particularly relevant either for the midterms upcoming or the presidential the election in 2020. 
Where these books matter most in the short term is it's an opportunity cost. There are other things that Trump could theoretically be talking about, getting a Supreme Court justice potentially confirmed, the economy, whatever else, trying to pivot the conversation to Democrats to make this more of a, a... uh, a, you know, a debate than a referendum in the midterm. But he can't do that because they're going to spend the, the entire week talking about Woodward. And so it is a distraction at a time when when no administration heading into the midterms needs a, a distraction. So, so Dan, let's talk about the midterms. And I, I know that there are kind of two aspects of, of Dan Pfeiffer here. One, you are an advocate here. You're working very hard on, on behalf of... of you know what you believe in. You're you're a, you're you're an advocate in, in this, but you're also I've known you for many years. You are mm-hmm. as shrewd an observer of political trends as as anybody I've talked to. You you are level headed. You can you 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 don't always drink the the Kool Aid in terms of where, <laughs> where where the results are going to be. So let me talk to that second Dan Pfeiffer. When you look out sure. at at what we have seen, um, at um, you, you look at the polling, you get a sense of of uh, anecdotally what's happening out there. What are we, what are we heading towards? Is this going to be a big blue wave? Are we going to see a huge Democratic uh, win in the House, Democrats taking over, over the Senate, or is this going to be kind of more of a mixed result, maybe a narrow uh, Democratic win in the House, maybe the uh, Republicans keep the Senate or even pick up a seat? What, what's it going to look like? I think it's a, it is sort of impossible to tell right now. I think Democrats are favored to take the House, and they should be. I think that's probably the most likely scenario as we sit today. When you look both at the polling and the generic ballot, the fundraising and grassroots enthusiasm for Democrats, and then the increase in Democratic performance, and even the reddest districts in the special elections we've had to date, everything looks very good for the Democrats, particularly in the House. And but there's a lot of work to do and a lot of time. And the thing that, that keeps me up at night is the only I think the only way in which the Republicans can keep the House absent some uh, exogenous event that would upend politics as we know it. Right. Some sort of world crisis, something like that, is the ability of Republican billionaires to spend money to disqualify individual candidates with huge amounts of paid media between now and the elections. And that keeps me up at night because there seems to be an inexhaustible uh, source of Republican billionaire funding for Republican candidates. And so that is that is worrisome. What would worry me if I was the, so the Senate, much tougher deal, right? Democrats have to pull an inside straight and win a lot of states that Trump won handily. What would worry me if I was the Republicans in that way is that in elections like these, the close races all tend to tip in one direction. Most people thought, if you remember back 2006, the idea of the Democrats taking the House was, was uh, the idea of Democrats taking the House was on the table in the weeks after the election. The Senate was a much, seen as a much longer shot, and then race after race, most notably uh, Jim Webb's victory over George Allen, that was called a few days after the election, all tipped towards the Democrats. In 2010, were it not for the Republicans nominating a bunch of dingbats like Sharon Engel and Christine O'Donnell in Delaware, they probably would have taken the Senate then. And in 2014, same thing happened. All the close races tipped in one direction. In 2012, when Obama was on the ballot, all the close races tipped in the Democratic direction. So what would make me nervous as Republicans is Democrats have momentum. They have uh, most of the political fundamentals on their side. And you got a bunch of close races that could go one way or the other. So I put myself in the cautiously optimistic camp right now 
and where Democrats are favored to take, I think, favored to take the House, uh, but with work to do to make sure that that happens. And and spoken like a guy that used to work for Evan Bayh, we know you know what these like in red states and and all of these ends of, uh, of potential potential waves. Dan done, done a South Dakota race or two as well. Yeah, that's right. He's yeah, been, he's, exactly. He I had a life before be, Obama. <laughs> people, I people, did. People, I did. It's, it's vaguely remembered. But <laughs> it happened. I, I still got that in my Rolodex somewhere. But but Dan, I, I I wonder if this is another another point of concern for Democrats and maybe a point of concern particular to you as a as a former Obama aide and someone who's quite close to, to President Obama, he he I, I agree with you. He's one of the all time great campaigners. I think that's undeniable and uh, and and a, and a great motivator for for the Democratic base. But I, there's a perception that I have that politics changed a lot in the last couple of years, and the, the brand of politics that Trump has brought to the table. He might welcome the contrast with President Obama. He may welcome. Uh, the moment that President Obama decides to engage directly with President Trump and starts to criticize him because it gives him a foil. Are you confident that President Obama has the political skills and the the ability that so many other politicians haven't had of engaging in politics in a way that motivates voters in the Trump era? If the game has changed, can he change with it? Yeah, I have uh, unending confidence in President Obama's political skills. I will say ever since 2016, where I had a great deal of confidence in a result that did not occur, I have uh, tried to bring a lot more humility to my uh, view of what's going to happen. Uh, I've sort of I've tried to get out of the prediction game. Look, I think it is important to remember that Trump did win, no doubt. He absolutely won. He also, if you reran that election, and this is not to ignore tremendous challenges that my party has to structurally uh, mistakes that remain to us in any of that. But Trump also got less votes and needed Russia and Jim Comey to push him over the finish line to win by 80,000 votes over three states. And so I am careful to both ignore what that meant in terms of what it says about Democrats, because we did lose a very winnable election and we lost it, not just Hillary Clinton, but we lost it up and down the ballot but also not to ascribe some sort of magical powers to Trump. If you look at it, his numbers are in the toilet. We've just, like, somehow we've established this new normal that Trump stinks up to 42 in the polls that he's somehow doing well when that that was caught, you know, when Obama had numbers like that in 2011, very briefly, uh, panic set out and people, you know, people were writing his political obituary and with Trump, it's like, come back for... The, the MAGA king or whatever. It's just, it's a very strange world in which we've looked at politics. I do not believe he has magical political skills uh, that have delivered anything because he has done very poorly on every single day since he was elected. Uh, quickly, Beto O'Rourke. Where, where do you put the odds there, Texas? Look, Texas is tough. Texas is tough. It is, it is, a, it is a red state. Now, it is important to remember that Texas moved more blue than any other state in 2016. And so it's headed in the right direction. I think Beto is a, is a, and I had the opportunity to interview him on stage in Austin, Texas at a positive America show. I think he is a transcendent politician. I think he has the potential to do this. I have never in, with the exception of Obama 08, I have not seen that sort of grassroots enthusiasm for a politician anywhere in America. And I don't, and I, we, I spent a week in Texas traveling Texas and saw it there. And everywhere I go in America, both on the tour for my book, Yes, We Still Can, and for Positive American Shows, people ask me about Beto. Everywhere I go, people tell me that they're text banking for him. 
And so there is something happening there. Will it be enough to get across the finish line? I sure as hell hope so, but it'll be a very close race. And if he wins, how soon do people start talking about him as a 2020 candidate? I think he's got to win the Senate first, but I think there will be tremendous, I think win or lose, there would be tremendous enthusiasm for him uh, to be on be on a presidential ticket uh, at some point in the future, and maybe pretty damn soon. Joe Biden, running or not? No idea. That's not a good answer, Dan. Come on. you got some well, idea. I mean, what, I, what do you think? It's we, honest, we know you don't know. We know you don't know. But He doesn't know. He'll say he doesn't know. But is, what, what, yeah, what's yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I, I actually don't know, and I'm not sure that uh, the vice president knows yet either. The front runner right now for the Democratic nomination. Fill in the blank. <sighs> that's a really, I mean, that's like almost an impossible question because you don't really, it's, you know, like you brought up, like, so where are we right now? We're in, I guess it's September of 2018. And in September 2006, when I was still working for everybody, as you mentioned, people would not have mentioned Barack Obama as a front runner, even a legitimate presidential candidate at that point. And so you just don't really know. I think I can see uh, it all depends on who runs, right? Like if you want to get into sort of analysis mode, if both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren won, what does that Elizabeth Warren run? What does that mean? Or do they, is there room for both of them? I don't know the answer to that. I can see a very legitimate path for a Kamala Harris, uh, you know, Kamala Harris path in nomination, depending on who else runs, right? Because you're just, it is such a, challenging question of how because these are going to be you know iowa new hampshire south carolina nevada and now california whoever how everyone who, who decides to run affects everyone else right and i think you just don't really know i think there's a, we have a, a bunch of great candidates and I'm, so there's some people i really want to run and so we'll see i mean it's a I basically just babble there so i don't have a really good answer and it's both because it's not a great answer, question to answer and i really don't know because you just and i ought, let me say one last thing on this to continue my babbling is <laughs> whether democrats take the house or not is going to dramatically affect what democratic primary voters are looking for and i i, I we i appreciate you copying to babbling but i would say it's a, by september of 06 we had a pretty good sense we thought we knew a lot we thought hillary clinton was the front runner i think we'd say i think there was probably some John yeah. Kerry buzz at that time still coming off yep. of his loss in 04. Uh, I think a lot of people thought Barack Obama was uh, was a rising star and was likely to give it a shot. We knew we knew we didn't know what we didn't know and things go in other directions. But what what is the healthy discussion for the Democratic Party? Because we you look into look into 2020, you're going to have a big battle on the left. And we've seen it play out again. We just saw just just this week Mike Capuano loses primary in Massachusetts again to a progressive uh, the progressive energy. You've got the Beto thing, which isn't, isn't pure progressivism. I don't think he's not quite as liberal as some others in the party. You're going to have the Bernie wing. You're going to have the, the, the big fight on the left. You're also going to have some raging moderates and some centrists in the field. How how do you think this has to play out to keep the party together and position it well for 2020? Well, I think the I'd say two things. One, I don't think it is an ideological debate per se, is in a, both in 2020 and in the, some of these primaries you referenced, that it's also establishment first. It's old versus new, establishment versus anti-establishment. Mike Capuano and Joe Crowley are died in the wool progressives, and they lost to more exciting uh, candidates who were ran better campaigns and were more inspirational and, and more represented something change, bringing change to Washington. And I think outsider candidates in 2020 will have an advantage both within primaries and then in a general election against Trump. The 
I think we have big debates in the Democratic Party. We have debates on message. We have debates on approach to Trump. And we have big policy debates about how Medicare for all, universal basic income, federal jobs guarantee, a whole bunch of things that need to be discussed. And my hope is I think we should have that debate. I hope 30 people run. I think that'd be great. I mean, it's not great for people to organize TV debates. That's a bad debate, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We do but, tears, right? Else, that's, not my, that's not my problem. Um, and uh, But we should have that debate. And what I think the best way to have that debate, which I think mostly happened, not we weren't perfect in 2016, or in 2008 when Obama and Clinton ran, but it was, I just think the, the more people who run, the bigger the debate, better. And if we are not just, if, if it devolves into in us versus them within the primary as 20, 2016 did at times, that's problematic. And I think actually the more people who run, the, the less likely that is, where it's just you're either for Bernie or for Hillary and you can never cross that line. And if you're, you know, in 2000, you know, it was obviously a lot of Obama versus Clinton. And there were some people who were very angry about it on both sides, but people were able to put it away in the end. And I think hopefully that happens at the end of this process, too. The more debate, the better. Uh, I know you have to go, but you did you did say something I need to follow up on. You said there were a couple people you hope will run. Can you can you tell us two people you hope are going to run? Who are you talking about? I would I would love to see Deval Patrick, Deval Patrick run for president. Mm-hmm. That's one. I would. That's one. That's one. Michael Avenatti is not on your list. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not someone that I am hoping. Run. If he wants to run for president, great. That is uh, that's totally his right, and I'm not. I'm not someone who's going to sit here and tell you he can or can't win based on his qualifications for president. I don't think Donald Trump winning tells you anything about whether Michael Avenatti can win. Um, but I'll keep I'll keep some of my other ones quiet. But <laughs> okay. uh, but but Deval Patrick is someone who I've had a ton of respect for. I think he his message, his uplifting, positive, hopeful, inclusive message would be uh, uh, a great addition to the discussion we'll have in 2020. All right, Dan Pfeiffer, great to have you on Powerhouse Politics. Uh, let's have you on again soon. Thanks so much, guys. All right, take care. Thanks, Dan. Um, so uh, not uh, over the top in terms of the predictions of, of a massive blue wave coming. I tell you, Rick, just because it's just the two of us talking here and our you know couple of million listeners. Um, I, I spoke to a uh, to a prominent lifelong Republican who's uh, been very active in, in in a lot of campaigns over the years. Today, who uh, had a much more um, from the Republican perspective, pessimistic from the Democratic perspective optimistic assessment uh, who told me that he thinks this is going to be a much bigger wave than people think. And I think the most salient point in Dan Pfeiffer's lived A blue these, wave, by the way, not the, blue the red wave. wave, yes, the red wave. Talking about uh, Dan's lived through these and we've covered them and I miss the lesson. I forget the lesson every time and I have to remind myself because we go through the map district by district, state by state, and we talk about how strong someone is and the fundraising numbers and the, the, the amazing ground game that they have and the organization and everything, and then waves happen, and that's why they're waves. And his point that close races tend to tip in the same direction is an important point to keep in mind because uh, as much as this is a ground war, point you know, district by district and, and candidate by candidate, and, and lots of, some incumbents will hang on in any environment because they're, they're that strong, uh, the, the national forces do have a tendency of taking over. And you look at this, we see it in our 
in our poll this week and the 14-point edge in the so-called generic ballot for Democrats, a 36% approval rating for President Trump. President Trump is the issue in in this election, and he will be the anchor around the necks of more candidates than he boosts, certainly on the House, potentially on the Senate as well. And I think even as Dan tries to dial back expectations and Democrats have lots of reasons to be concerned that they could could yet fall short, uh, the the history of, uh, of this moment is on their side. And you asked a very shrewd question, which is, is it a, basically, is it effective to have Obama play a, a high-profile role? Because if you're a Democrat right now in a lot of these districts, you want, you want Trump, to be the, <clears throat> Trump to be the issue. Yeah. You, don't, you don't want Obama to be and the issue. And I, I do believe – I was going to say this. And nothing. he is a, obviously a very effective campaigner, but he wasn't particularly effective in either of the midterms while he was president. That's a great point. And, and look, Trump – the thing that Trump would like the most in terms of Democrats campaigning would be Hillary Clinton. I think she is <laughs> right. going to be shrewd enough to limit her public appearances. Right. Uh, but a battle against Barack Obama? President Trump made his political name for himself by battling President Obama. As, as we recall, the birther movement was his political rebirth, and it, it gave him the platform. It gave him the visibility that he ultimately rode to the presidency. Uh, it took an, a whole election cycle. It took a while, but it was jousting against Obama where President Trump cut his political teeth uh, at the ripe old age of 60 or so. He, he became a politician really to oppose Obama. He would love, and Republicans would love, to refight uh, midterm battles over the turf of Obamacare, uh, bring back uh, bring back the old group, fight it over Benghazi if they can wheel that out again, and and have the, the kind of battle that they feel like they could win, particularly in a midterm year. Obama's no doubt the most energizing force in the Democratic Party, and having him will get Democrats off the sidelines, sure. I think they will show up to, to, to for his rallies and potentially show up to vote, but President Trump likes those contrasts, and, and I think the Trump v. Obama fight, if that's the fall, I think there's a lot of Republicans that kind of like the matchup. All right. That is all the time we have now for Powerhouse Politics. Thank you to Angie Yak, Avery Miller, Trevor Hastings in New York, our senior executive uh, producer. Is that, what's the title? Poobah. Poobah. Uh, uh Thank you for listening, and we will be back soon. <laughs>